Welcome to this episode of my podcast series, The View from My Middle Finger, where I look at the world through the many social media platforms. This is The View through My Middle Finger, where your opinion matters, but The View always looks different from My Middle Finger. If I could turn back time. For those who have listened to my previous podcasts, you will know that I poke fun at many of the subjects I raise, and with that, add a healthy level of sarcasm. However, with this series, I will dial down the sarcasm as the topic we will be exploring is an important social discussion around generational change. In this series, we have sourced material from the internet, which provides us with an insight and understanding of the changes which have impacted our society across multiple generations, leading to an understanding of our society today. We are all very much a product of our parents, as they are a product of their parents. And while this may ring true, we are all products of the times and society from which our parents have come from. A time when they were raised and the values that impacted them. So it is important on a societal level to take a breath and take time to understand where our parents and their parents have come from to make us and our society what it is today. In this three-part podcast special, we will take a journey through the past 60 years where I will present material from the internet which provide a portal of information on how society has been shaped across the generations. What a shame. These darn kids on their phones all the time. Well, back in my day, mm-hmm, phone was a phone. You used it to call people. Well, back in my day, mm-hmm, my mama would have ripped me in the bathroom, put a bar of Johnson & Johnson in my mouth, ripped her belt off her beaten waist, yeah! While we may make a joke of the way in which our grandparents speak, about in my day. The fact is that they do believe that things were so much better in their day or counter to that. In their day, things were so much harder. So why do we all complain about our lives? I'm sure you've all heard this mentioned by your parents or grandparents. And I'm sure for the people who may make these statements, they feel that life was better or worse depending on their upbringing and circumstances. While life would have certainly been different in some areas of society, it doesn't necessarily mean better or worse for all as we will find out. With the passage of time and as the details in one's memory begin to fade, then perhaps all that's left is the memory that made the most impact to these individuals. The same goes with today and the social commentary about life today compared to previous decades. Perhaps in some ways the differences are not so great and maybe while the social ills and social discord may have related to different matters, this doesn't mean that they were any less important or less stressful for those that lived in previous times. In this episode, if I could turn back time, we will look at the past and highlight what was topical through these years in the hope that this may provide some context to what society is grappling with now and along the way we may realise that the perceived generation gap may not be so great a gap after all. Let's start this journey back in time and travel back to the 50s and the 60s. I am focusing on this time for a reason, as I believe that this period forms the basis for most significant change in our society through the next 60 years up until today. 
The parents of the 1950s were, I think, the most unusual generation of the 20th century. These are the people who had grown up in the Depression. They had experienced real tough times when they were children and when they were teenagers. And then World War II hit, as many of them were just reaching adulthood, and they had the trauma of the war. And then, after all that, they reached the 1950s at a time when the U.S. was tremendously prosperous, when the economy was booming as we've never seen it before. And I think they reacted to that prosperity, and they think, I think they reacted strongly to all of the trauma of the Depression and the war by turning inward a bit, by marrying young, by emphasizing home and family. It was a perfect um, setting in which the youth culture, in a certain sense, could, could blossom. Uh, life in the suburbs was organi organized around the kids again. Uh, they were the center of attention, a ra endless round of Little League games and PTA meetings, etc. So it was in the suburbs, in a, a certain sense, that this message about the importance and the uniqueness and the generational potency associated with these kids, I think, was delivered with real force. In the average American family today, children are the object of more concentrated thought and concern than the young of any previous generation. For out of an increasing understanding of child psychology has come an awareness that children are real people with individual personalities which must be respected and encouraged. This was a distinctly new way to be raised in the world. The comment on the change in focus to children and their mental development may seem in today's terms to be a little condescending to some. The fact is that this approach and focus on the mental development of children is still the same today, and while the methods may have changed, the same fundamental focus remains, and to think that in the 50s is where it all began. And it allowed um, for a whole generation that I suppose we would now call spoiled, spoiled kids, which from another point of view simply meant kids who had very high expectations in life with respect to freedom and happiness. They thought life was about being free and about being happy. And they carried those expectations forward into high school and into college uh, and brought with them a kind of um, um, uh, a level of expectation that was simply unprecedented in, I, I would say, in world history. We found out in the 50s that if you got up in the morning and went to work and did a good day's work, uh, that things got better. You got promoted or you got more money. Uh, you were able to buy furniture. You could have more children. The children could have better clothes. And life just improved. We knew it was because you went to work. But I'm not sure our children realized that. They saw simply that the clothes got better, the house got bigger, the, the neighborhood got nicer. And I have a strong suspicion that what happened in the late 60s was that the kids who rebelled took it for granted that life would improve automatically. I believe this is a very important point to make and provides some insight into the generation that followed the 50s and possibly all generations thereafter. The children of the 50s became the adults of the 60s and moved forward with a different attitude towards life and the material world around them. Now here's a major seed of the 60s. Because of their profoundly different life experiences, kids had trouble understanding why their fathers worked so hard. The way many of them saw it, their fathers were engaging in the single-minded pursuit of material comforts. My dad was always above board in all his business dealings. But I would say money and getting ahead and, 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 and making a lot of bucks was his goal. 
And I think what it was was dad meant well. Dad wanted to love us, but dad was so busy at work. He would work till two, three in the morning doing artwork, artwork for the business. He'd get up early and be gone. I hardly ever saw him. Everything young boys saw at home and on TV told them that if they did as they were supposed to, they would be, quote, lucky enough to follow in their father's footsteps. The Cub Scout program helps the boys' adjustment both to the family and to the group. This son of yours has been fighting again. Look at this shirt. Can I tell you about it, Pop? Look, he's proud of it. Please, Pop. Not now, Jerry. I'm tired. I had a Mike bad Mike Kelly day. said you didn't have the guts to stand up for yourself, so I took a poke at him. That was all right, Poor wasn't it? Mike. What TV showed you was a world in which men were essentially impotent. He didn't have any right to say that about you, did he, Pop? Go to your room and get a decent shirt. This minute. Did he, Pop? There were no chance for risk. There was no place for excitement. There was no place for no challenges being offered whatsoever. These days, we use terms like wrapping children in cotton wool or overprotective parenting. Isn't it wonderful how this washer does all these heavy things? And what did girls feel was in store for them? A life just like their mother's. Judy, it isn't as bad as all that, dear. Sorry, Mother. I was just thinking. About what? Oh, you know. Thinking how awful wash day used to be for you before you had the electric water heater and the washer. So now I add the pectin. Educational films like this one reflect society's belief that women could find fulfillment only as housewives and mothers. Now I let it come to a full rolling boil again. It won't take long. You like to cook, don't you, Pat? Oh, it's not just liking to cook, it's, it's more. It's, well, it's accomplishing something. It's me cooking, me, Susan Douglas. And not just cooking, but, well, creating something special. Oh, I wish Miss Holland could talk to you. She could say it so much better than I can. Who's Miss Holland? She's my home economics teacher. Not enough of anyone means soup instead of jelly. Even girls who were sent to college often majored in what were called the domestic sciences. <laughs> well, there's one nice thing about it happening in class. Here it's part of our learning. At home, it would be a minor tragedy. There was a song when I went to college at Smith College, which they don't sing anymore, I know, that had a verse that went something like this. You're sharp as a pinpoint. Your grades are really ten point. You are Dean's list, Sophia Smith. But when a man wants a kiss kid, he doesn't want a quiz kid. Oh, you can't get a man with your brains, with your brains, with your brains. Oh, you can't get a man with your brains. And it had verses that went on and on. Now, I sang that in 1957 with a sense of how true it was and how funny it was. Now, of course, it makes a shiver run up and down my spine. When we discuss the question of gender equality today, we talk about gender pay gap and opportunity. And while these are the topics of today, it is not until we compare attitudes today against the attitudes of the 50s to realize how far gender opportunity and gender equality has actually come, and more importantly, the expectations of society on women and how that has changed. I had four choices of things that I could be when I grew up. I could be a teacher, a nurse, a stewardess, 
or a secretary. Um, I couldn't go into to things that, that dealt with medicine. I couldn't go into law. I couldn't go into the real professions. Um, it was it was extremely limiting, and of course the overall goal was to find a husband, um, get married, have children, and live with a white picket fence. I used to make little stews for my child, and he used to spit them out and stick them on the wall, but I went on doing it. I don't know why. Uh, Dr. Spock, I, I think Dr. Spock ruined everything. I really do. I mean, he's, he's wonderful in the peace movement, but the, this, was this whole image of, of giving your children everything you had, and they, they have to be satisfied, and they have to be content, and I think we gave them much too much. And here it is, the American family of the 1950s, as it was seen thousands of evenings on TV. Happy kids, happy father, happy mother. Everyone behaving as they were supposed to. You know, it's none of my business, but don't you think taking riding lessons is a pretty expensive way to meet a girl? The message was absolutely unmistakable. This was the way your life should be. And if it wasn't, something must be very wrong. Before we move on to the 60s, let's summarize society of the 1950s. In many ways, the 1950s was a somewhat sterile society with a very prescribed set of expectations to follow, which were reinforced through the media and within the education system. However, by the same token, in the 1950s was the start of change, as we have understood in the journey back in time. It was a change in focus for parents and the way they engaged with their children, a change in how children saw their parents and how they perceived their role in the family, a shift from being a protector to that of the means to a greater material existence, where more freedoms were given and yet more were to come, as we will find out as we move through to the 1960s. As we have discovered, the youth of the 50s became the adults of the 60s, and with a change in attitudes, society was moving from what was a very prescribed set of expectations in the 50s to now becoming an ever-widening level of freedom, where in some areas of society the shackles have been loosened and society has taken a step forward into a new direction. Attitudes toward marriage and divorce are not the only social norms to be shattered by the experiences of the 60s. Back in 1959, 90% of American adults agreed that the only proper time to discover intimate details about a partner was after the matrimonial knot had been tied. Today, one of every two Americans acknowledges that living together before marriage is a good idea. Physical desire is very normal and it happens and it's sometimes everything just comes down to a very basic level and there's nothing wrong with it i think that sex is just much groovier when there's love you know there's a lot more happening but there's nothing wrong with just sex for sex the sexual revolution one thing this open and permissive experiment with sex dramatically changed was the great american double standard the percentage of men who say they had sex before marriage has increased slightly over the years. But since the 60s, the percentage of women who say they've had sex before marriage has nearly doubled. But clearly, that's not all the sexual revolution of the 60s changed. Well, actually, the sexual revolution was the most widespread and most long-lasting of all the legacies 
of the 60s. I mean, the polls in 1970 showed radical changes in sexual behavior and mores, not just among hippies and college students on the two coasts, but blue-collar workers in Texarkana and Des Moines. It was very widespread. It permeated entire culture. Well, you know, I've written a book that was originally titled The End of Sex, an all-time worst title for a book. <laughs> but it was really about uh, the end of the obligatory sexuality. And I have criticized the sexual revolution, so I'm on that side too. And yet I can say very clearly that it was, it was a, one of those long overdue revolutions. In the way that the 50s changed the family unit with a shift on the focus on children and their mental development, along with that came a greater and broader desire for a material existence. Within the 60s came the interpersonal freedom and introspective focus on exploring one's own place in the world and a focus on a personal happiness or personal driven goal. As we will discover in further episodes of this series, the focus on the individual in society continues to grow as we move forward in time. The 1960s, while seen as a leap in progressing change, also created its own conformist attitudes that you need to choose a side rather than sitting on the fence. The feminist movement of the 60s was one such cause that became more radical and while the premise for the movement was grounded in a desire for equality of opportunity, in many ways it left some women in an unenviable and untenable situation as we will find out. Uh, always in that awful situation that women found themselves before the women's movement of basically having to sort of say no and being sort of called on it and everything was sort of tense and, and, and difficult. When you go back and you watch a videotape from the 60s, it looks gross, it looks dirty. Everybody looks dirty and sloppy and messy and foul-mouthed and, you know, you sort of want to scratch yourself when you see it, you know. And was that, was it so important to us not to take a bath, you know, how important was that? That was childish. Of course we were children, so I suppose we had an excuse. The biggest regret is foolishly alienating the working class. That's the number one regret. Because we had at that time no concept of divide and conquer. No concept that those people might be important allies and that it was not worth alienating them for really childish issues like the right to use four-letter words, you know, or the right to flaunt your sexuality. Um, I mean, I will, I will censor this quote a little bit, but the leader of the farm, Stephen Gaskin, said that the Reagan era was paying us back for doing it in the streets, and next time we'll try to make our revolution a little bit more serious and substantial and deal with social issues. I thought it was interesting to listen to someone who was part of the counterculture reflecting on when they are essentially naive and in the statement they made mentioned that if they were to have had their time again what they wouldn't have done would be to discount or ignore the middle class. Here, in a way, is another example of what is happening now in our society. However, I would suggest that it appears to be with a greater degree of loathing and disdain. One place where the young people of the 1960s did make serious and substantial changes was on the college campus. It's a curious irony that some of those who once actively protested against administration policies have themselves become professors and university administrators. Dr. Arthur Levine. We did a study a few years ago to look at what happened to all the reforms of the 60s. And they included things like new and relevant courses. 
those new enrollment courses are still there. Looked at areas that had come into the curriculum, like uh, ethnic studies, like women's studies, those things are still there. We created things like interdisciplinary majors, which brought a variety of fields together. Those are still there in equal numbers. We created things like independent study, which let a student study with a faculty member alone on an issue of interest to the student. Those are still there in the same proportion. We created new kinds of grading systems, pass-fail grading for some courses. That's still there in the same proportion or higher. So all the reforms of the 60s have just been layered upon, but haven't disappeared. So in a lot of ways, the 60s formed at least an important part of what the curriculum is today. The things that hurt about the 60s are that there really was an anti-intellectualism in which we said all people and all ideas are equal. They're not. That was a hurtful kind of response. In a lot of ways, it's reminiscent of the Red Garden China in the 60s and 70s in which they threw out the important ideas and turned their universities into places that no longer discovered truth no longer disseminated truth. The adage about history repeats appears to be realised as I continue to research this subject and how generations across the years appear to take on the same attitudes towards authority, even today, which now appears to have its genesis in the 60s. The statement around strides made in the 60s in education system, the new courses in subjects that just 10 years earlier would not have been heard of, However, at the same time, as described by someone who was part of the counterculture and who now is part of the establishment, who decries the anti-intellectualism which led to the thought that all ideas and thoughts are equal or should be the same. We see similar attitudes in different social movements today where the mantra is of a similar ilk, where equality becomes much more than an equal opportunity and more along the lines of equality meaning that everyone should think the same and should therefore speak the same. The 1950s concept of work had changed by the end of the 1960s, not only in terms of stress, but because of a 60s sensibility that work should be a means of self-expression and fulfillment, that a person should get more from a job than simply a paycheck. I think this is one of the best things, the best holdovers personally for me, is I've followed my heart's desires. I haven't fallen into the trap of you have to make money doing this and that and money's a god. It's not. The being self-satisfied in the sense that what you're doing in life is important and going to pass something on to another generation is much more important to me. And I believe that I learned all that in the 60s especially the sense that I want some part of me to affect somebody else in life later on. I've noticed as people who went to school during that era, like 68 through 73, share a set of values and a set of understandings that people on either side, younger and older, just don't get. And so when you're in the workplace uh, and uh, you're talking about uh, idealism, that people of that generation have a certain sense of idealism that things can and should be better right down to the details of how people treat each other day to day and that that there's a political component to day to day interaction and experience it's just it's a perspective that we have and when you go into the workplace with other people 
who may be just a few years older, a few years younger, and talk that way, they look at you like you're a Martian. That 60s attitude led many working Americans to feel that money was not the only important career goal. That each individual should set his or her own standards for determining what success means. But although many today strive for a more fulfilling work life, the way the 60s generation measures success has stayed essentially the same. A recent Rolling Stone magazine survey revealed that most members of the 60s generation were surprised by how career-oriented they had become and perplexed by how much the system they tried to change changed them. Only the promise of, of a material affluence, only the promise of, of two cars, only the promise of a split level divided again and again and again in suburbia after suburbia after suburbia. That's the only thing that this, that this culture can offer people now, bread alone. Now, the question is whether or not you're going to accept that. I shared a blazing contempt for everything that America seemed to pride itself in, that is to say straight middle America. Uh, since then, I think I've learned to appreciate better the, the terrific labor, the industry, and good luck that are required for the, uh, the perdure of that dream. It looks shakier these days, and the culture that could achieve some confidence in its ability to provide the nice house on the nice street, the nice school, the nice college education, the nice job, the confidence of such a culture seems uh, more, of a, more of an achievement than it did. It seemed to come without effort, but now I understand there was a lot of effort and a lot of chanciness to it. I believe that our youth have always been a group of people who see things in a less complicated manner through eyes that have not yet experienced life which challenge them with responsibilities that provide a circumspect attitude towards society and an empathy that can only exist through life experiences. And for that I do not suggest that their view would be any different than let's say those of an older generation. While that may be my opinion, what I have found in listening to those who have lived in the 60s who were part of an idealistic mindset is an understanding that as they too became older and experienced, their attitudes have tended to change as I believe will be the case for the youth of the current time and will continue this way in a similar cycle into the future. What we witnessed in the 60s was a wholesale abandonment of the black community by the black community. In other words, we bought into integration as opposed to desegregation. And so we integrated ourselves out of our own colleges, out of our own medical schools, out of our own businesses, out of our own baseball teams. There was a wholesale abandonment of our own institutions that sustained us through slavery, through segregation, through discrimination, through bigotry. The, all those institutions within our community that sustained us, uh, that, that provided the moral glue that kept us going, that this was just torn asunder in the name of uh, integration. And I think the black community today continues to pay a heavy price for what we gained in the civil rights movement. With the memories and passions from the 60s still stirring in so many, 
Perhaps history won't be able to decide on the full impact of the 60s until the last member of the 60s generation has passed on. In summing up the 60s, it was a time of change, a shift towards an independence that had not existed before, with a focus on the individual as opposed to that of the family which had existed in the 50s. This set society on a course that was not about to change and that would only become more defined and to continue to press forward across the generations which were yet to come. In part two of this three-part series, we will explore the 70s and the 80s and understand how these two generations were not only impacted by societal changes but also impacted by the introduction of technological changes. I'm your host Digaf and this has been The View from My Middle Finger. You can listen to my podcast episodes on Spotify, Amazon, Apple and wherever good podcasts are found. You can also check out our website. Just search for tvfmmf.com and you can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com tvfmmfinger. And remember, if you don't like The View from My Middle Finger, too bad, try your own.